This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have all kinds of amazing things that go on in this community, and we love to highlight them when we can. And we get an opportunity to do some of that highlighting right now. And we do it as it pertains to London Police Services, because London Police Services has started something new. And this is something that they have been recognized for. It's called Stronger Than You Know, and it's a campaign that has just won a national award. It's an internal mental health anti-stigma initiative. Because let's face it, when we are talking about police officers, how are police officers perceived? Sometimes how do they have to perceive themselves? But are they immune to mental health disorders? Absolutely not. Nobody is. So London Police Services has basically put together this campaign And it has been led by Roxanne Bobian, who is the manager of corporate communications and media relations. And we are lucky enough to be able to talk about this and how it has worked with Roxanne. She joins us now on London Live. Roxanne, first off, congratulations on the work that you have done. This is excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, it was a great team that was behind putting all of the work together and the strategy and and developing it. And it's just, it's such an honor for it to be recognized. Let's kind of feel out what this is. And and maybe to do that, we probably have to go back to the genesis of it and, and why it started. Take us back there. Well, as people are aware, there is a increased prevalence of um, mental health, mental wellness issues in first amongst first responders, and that has been recognized by the London Police Service um, for several years now. But um, in early, uh, sorry, mid. 2018, we created a mental wellness committee here at London Police Service, and um, one of the initiatives of that committee was this Stronger Than You Know campaign, and the idea is that, um, you know, there's concerns that in the general public as well as amongst first responders that people who may be dealing with mental health struggles, that it it may be seen as a sign of of weakness. And that's one of the myths out there. Uh, When, in fact, it really takes a lot of strength to deal with these kinds of struggles. Uh, you have to be very strong to to seek out treatment. You have to be very strong to um, and go through that kind of treatment. Um, it's it's not easy to deal with. So the idea of the Stronger Than You Know campaign is to take that misconception, that myth of weakness, and turn it on its head. We are talking with Roxanne Bobier, who is the manager of corporate communications and media relations for London Police Services. And we're talking about that stronger than you know. And how difficult maybe is it for that message to filter through among, say, police officers? Because if you aren't courageous, you're not a police officer. The, the two things kind of go hand in hand. Therefore, because this has always been perceived maybe as a weakness how then does a police officer get through kind of that extra layer of that stigma? But see, that's just it there that it's not weakness, right? There's a, there's this uh, this 
stereotype, this idea that that it's weakness, and um, it's not. It's an Ill, it, it can be an illness. It, everybody faces challenges, uh, regardless of their career. Yes, um, first responders are definitely exposed to much more trauma or traumatic incidents than the general population. But um, it's just getting rid of that uh, stereotype that mental illness or mental health struggles are are is a weakness. It's it's not a character flaw. It's it's an illness, or it's you know dealing with um, incredibly stressful situations. So in stronger than you know, how is that done? Well, what we did, the main component of the the campaign was uh, testimonials from one police officer and one of our 911 operators uh, or dispatchers um, who have dealt with um, mental health issues and have come out of that. And we focused on uh, them telling their stories, a little bit about their stories, but what they did to uh, get better, what they did to address it, and how much strength it took for them to face that they needed help. And um, it, it, we did that by on video, and there were very compelling videos um, that were very heartfelt and really spoke to um, many of the members that uh, that watched them. Um, and we did some poster a poster campaign um, that also featured uh, leaders within the organization, regardless of their rank, but respected leaders in the organization who talked about how it's a sign of strength to ask for help. And then we also did a pledge campaign uh, where uh, we had more than probably about 150 people who took pledges to, you know, um, stop the stop judging people, to see, uh, reach out to people who look like they might need um, some support, to um, uh, stop stereotyping uh, people. And that, those were the central elements of the the awareness campaign, but also coupled with that at the same time, um, the Mental Wellness Committee was bringing in a series of speakers um, to speak to members, to all employees about experiences, about um, uh, treatment, about uh, the stigma uh, associated with it. So there's a whole series of things that are happening at the same time um, that have been happening over the course of the last year to really try and encourage people to seek help, encourage people to uh, to talk about uh, the issues that, that they may be facing. We're talking with Roxanne Beaubien, who is the Manager of Corporate Communications and Media Relations with London Police Services. We're talking about Stronger Than You Know. Roxanne, finally, how has this been received? The campaign? Yeah, by people within London Police Service. Uh, very well. We actually did a follow-up survey, which was one of the key elements uh, for consideration to be recognized for uh, this award, is that we actually talked to our employees and found out uh, what they thought of it. And, and we had 
more than 90% of respondents to our survey said that they had seen the material. About half of those said that they had watched the videos, and uh, nearly 8 in 10 said that it the videos helped them to better understand challenges people uh, may be facing, and it better it helped them to better understand some of the symptoms. Um, many of them also said that it helped to change their attitude about mental health challenges in a positive way. And then um, most importantly, I think, is that uh, a good number of people said that the campaign helped them to realize that if they need help, that it's there and that they should step forward and, and ask for that assistance, whether it be through our peer support program or through more formalized channels. Well, again, congratulations on the work that has been done, and the award is well-deserved. Roxanne, have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Roxanne Bobian, Director of Corporate Communications and Media Relations with London Police Services. It is called Stronger Than You Know, and it's a campaign which is now a national award-winning campaign. Congratulations. Serial killers are a fascination. In fact, sometimes they lead way into what we're going to discuss at 2.35 this afternoon, and that is the science of fear. Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers. There is a fascination that people have. True crime has become a real fascination. If you look at the Smiley Face Killer, there's an entire podcast series that has been done about that individual. It's now being turned into, I think, a movie. And from there, we just see the power of true crime. There's all kinds out there. And with that, it allows us to explore maybe what that fascination is, but maybe a little bit more of the numbers in behind it. Professor Michael Arnfield is someone who has studied a lot of true crime, written books on true crime, true crime from around southwestern Ontario. But he has recently been quoted in The Atlantic about serial killers and whether or not we do have more serial killers. We had a chance to catch up with Professor Arnfield and asked him that question. Professor Arnfield, do we have fewer serial killers? Well, Mike, the short answer is we don't know for sure. So, uh, I mean, as recently as 2014, a colleague of mine in California published who, I mean, for many years was the preeminent authority on this, confirmed that basically since the rise of the Internet, we've seen about a 10 to 15 percent increase in the number of serial killers. But again, that is just uh, based on arrests. And that's also based on the fact that the definition was revised in 2006 from a minimum of three victims to two victims, which automatically then increases the, the overall number. Uh, beyond that, we look at a case like someone like uh, Sam Little in the U.S., who's now the most prolific serial killer confirmed in American history, at about 85 confirmed victims, and he's been serving time for uh, the penitentiary for years, and uh, an investigator just got him talking. And these were cases no one had connected and no one, I mean, a few of them were, were loosely connected using the VICAP system uh, in the U.S. But, I mean, these were cases that no one 
knew were constellated as part of a larger, uh, a larger pattern of, of serial homicides. So the thought is that we actually have no idea, and there's far more out there uh, still waiting to be discovered. What we do know for sure is, um, and this comes from our um, software algorithm that we use uh, with the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, scanning about a million murders now, is that uh, we're looking at between 3,000 and 3,500 known or suspected still active in the United States. How kind of puzzled might the public be to know how many murder cases go unsolved? You would think, oh, it's a murder, eventually we get to an end, just like Law and Order. It's not just like Law and Order, is it? No, and in fact, um, a couple of years ago, 2016 marked the lowest uh, solved rate, or what we call the clearance rate, for homicide in the United States uh, in recorded history. About one in two murders went unsolved. In some cities, it's as high as, I'm not going to advertise those cities, but you can probably guess, as high as you know, seven or eight out of ten going unsolved. And the, the net result of this is uh, there's about 275,000 unsolved murders still on the books in the United States. And um, on average, about 2,500 a year also go missing. So those are homicides that get misclassified and are never properly investigated. And we're in the midst of getting to the bottom of that now. In Canada, we have even less of an idea because uh, StatsCan, the Canadian Center for Criminal Justice, statistics is not as forthcoming as um, the U.S. Justice Department in the States regarding homicide data. Uh, You can go to the StatsCan website and every year they sort of decide what the top 10 greatest hits are, what the top 10 trends are in homicide uh, and publish those, but they will not, like my colleagues and I have been doing in the United States, provide uh, that case-level data that will allow us to actually track and publish patterns and who is solving at what rate and what have you. We're talking with Professor Michael Arnfield, author of Murder City, Mad City, Monster City, which just came out last year. And we're kind of looking at murders that do take place and the idea that there could be connections. Now, you just cited an algorithm in Washington, D.C., the technology that we have, the DNA evidence that we have. How strange does it seem that we don't have more success trying to solve murders given all of the tools available. Well, that's really the enigma is that uh, not only do we have the tools, but uh, the overall homicide rate has been declining and yet the solved rate is declining. Again, we, we this is largely U.S. data, but this is what we use as the barometer for patterns in homicide uh, globally. Uh, the overall number is down and yet we're solving fewer of those fewer murders, and it would seem that, in fact, there are more uh, serial killers active than previously thought. And again, to go back to the case of Sam Little, this is suspected to include what we now know to be concealed homicides or or homicides that get uh, initially undetected and allow the offender to continue operating because no one's looking for them. And the chief coroner here in Ontario has actually commissioned an inquiry into this in that... Uh, I mean, your listeners can look up the case of the Johnstone family in Mississauga. Here's three members of a, of a single family murdered in the same home in three separate incidents over the course of two years. And it took until the third murder that they started to actually look at these as connected. The first two were ruled accidental. And it was the same offender kept going back and systematically executing this family. And the thought is, how many other cases like that are out there where the offender, uh, I mean, is essentially completely invisible in that the murder uh, gets misclassified as undetermined, accidental, uh, or um, suicide even. 
Um, and in my book, Murder City, I talk about this. There is a history even of this in London where Russell Johnson, uh, the balcony strangler, a uh, very prolific serial killer in the 70s, his first two victims uh, were initially dismissed as uh, accidental overdoses while they slept. And in fact, he had crawled through their balcony window uh, and, and suffocated them. And it wasn't until he started to get sloppy by the third victim that the police started to look at historical cases involving women dead in their bed in high-rise apartments. And what happened was he was scaling the exterior of the buildings and uh, coming in and um, in the middle of the night and, and killing them. Wow. Professor Michael Arnfield joining us. You have a panel coming up. Uh, what is taking place? What are you going to be talking about? So speaking of Murder City, which was, of course, the first in, in the trilogy of the, the Homicide City books, uh, detailing what happened here in London over the course of 30 years. Uh, November 3rd, that's a Sunday at Museum London Words Fest, is actually having, given the, the true crime sort of fandom that you talked about, Mike, a day committed to talking about uh, two books, one of which is mine, the other one is a, is a recently released uh, sort of spin-off, I guess we could call it, um, looking at the history of not only homicide in London, but how that has been committed to sort of local legend and writing, uh, including uh, my book and, and sort of its impact on then creating a series of books and also on uh, how we investigate murders differently today. Professor Arnfield, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Professor Michael Arnfield, on the prevalence of serial killers. So there's no real way to determine because you have a lot of unsolved cases. And you would think, isn't it interesting, that you would think having more technology, having more connectivity and communication between police forces, that would make this a little bit easier when in actuality it doesn't seem like it's doing that. And that seems really strange, but... Those are the facts. But the true crime element of life, yeah, that's still there. That's still a big attraction. I'm not even sure what that is. What is it about true crime? Because I'll admit, I have listened to different things or watched different things. If one of those shows comes on that shows a murder at the beginning and you think, yeah, I wonder how that Oh, look, that's interesting how all of that played out. It is. It's fascinating. And I'm not sure where that comes from. But it's probably an innate human thing where, number one, you can't believe that someone would be able to do that to somebody else. And you know, somebody's made the argument before that you're drawn to true crime as a way of protecting yourself, that you want to hear the story of how things went poorly for somebody so that you know not to be in that situation. And it sounds like an offbeat theory, but then you think about it and you think, well, maybe that is part of the draw to it. Yeah, see, that person was hanging out with another bad guy, and that bad guy came to that person's garage late at night, and yeah, well, I don't hang out with a bad guy, and I don't hang out in my garage late at night, so I'm going to be okay. And you wonder if that has something to it, if that's where that attraction to true crime comes from. But at the same time... We love mysteries, and in a way, that's what draws you to it as well. The mystery part of it, the whodunit part of it. Agatha Christie sold many a book, and there have been a lot of authors after her that have gone out with the same sort of genre and have sold many a book that haven't taken a whole lot of thought to put them together.
We have something that is going to be kicking off later on this week. It's London's Homeless Helpers. And joining us is the person who originally put this together. And it's something we can all take part in. Please welcome back to London Live, Misty Craig. Misty, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good. How are the dolls? The dolls are great. (laughs) They're still a lot of fun. (laughs) Okay, good. Because we're at the Halloween time where those kind of dolls, uh, we talked about it before we started the interview, they come in very handy at this time of year, don't they? They sure do, yes. Not only are you doing that, you're involved in London's Homeless Helpers event for 2019, and it's happening at the Salvation Army Center of Hope on November the 24th, but in a way, it's it's almost kind of happening as we progress later this week. What is taking place? What is the London's Homeless Helpers event? Okay, so London's Homeless Helpers was created five years ago by myself. Um, I just kind of opened my doors to the community to say, if you have something you no longer use that the homeless could benefit from, drop it off. And the amount of donations I got was overwhelming, to say the least. Um, I was not expecting such a great um, support. Um, And because we needed, obviously, to distribute it in a larger scale than I was expecting, we decided to make an annual event of it. Um, And it's just been going for five years. So basically any items that the homeless can use, i.e. winter clothing, blankets, um, there's a list, uh, which I believe you're going to put out. Yes. Um, But there's a bunch of different items. Each person will come. They can collect the items that they need. Uh, Before they leave, they get a care package, which is full of toiletries, um, you know, things that we take for granted each and every day. Yeah, I mean, the idea so, of being yeah, able to grab a Q-tip when you come out of the shower because, oh, I, I have an itch in my ear and we're able to do that, uh, that's not something It's funny that... that you mentioned the Q-tip because I just went out um, to the street and ironically, that was the first thing they all grabbed out and were super excited about was Q-tips, actually. So it's kind of funny that you made that reference. One of the other things on the list is socks and we don't realize how important socks are and how difficult it is when your socks get wet to get them dry again well and footwear is one of the biggest uh demands that we get very little of that we could use the most of um for that exact reason because once their socks are wet which most of them their shoes are holy and they're not proper footwear especially heading into the winter months you know, their extremities are at risk, absolutely, for frostbite. And a lot of them have had to have amputations for that very reason. So boots, shoes, we're talking about. And as Misty said, I'll put the list on Facebook. I'll put the list out on Twitter. But it's pretty easy to think of the things that we might use each and every day, whether it's toothbrushes and toothpaste, little mini shampoos and conditioners. Even hygiene products. Bingo. something that, you know... We take for granted as women, you know, underwear is another big one that we never seem to get a lot of, but it's like the first thing to go. So, um, and again, all of these items do not need to be new. They can be used, but obviously clean um, and not soiled in any way. Um, But yeah, we offer um, the donation drop-off spot from November 1st to November 20th at 700 Osgood Drive, and it's Unit 134. 
there's a big sign on the door where you can open it up and put place your donations in there, and I will get to them as soon as I can. What was it that made you want to start this or think that this could be something that would help? Well, if I'm being completely honest, there was actually two young boys my very first year who were looking for to fill backpacks, and I kind of reached out to them because I had a bunch of donations that I planned to give to a charity of need. And I talked to these kids and, you know, they were just like, yeah, we're just going to head out to the street and hand stuff out. And I said, you know what, I think that's a great opportunity, but why don't we see, you know, if we can go bigger with this? Like, I didn't expect to go as big as we did, but um, I just kind of have a, a large following of people myself and my social network. And I thought, why not use this for good? And like I said, our first year, we filled three U-Hauls. So definitely way more than the backpacks that we expected to fill. And I've just carried it on every year since. So, Well, thank you for doing it because it makes such a difference. And donations, again, can be given in between November 1st and November 20th. So starting on Friday, 700 Osgood Drive, Unit 134. We have that information here. I'll tweet it out. It'll be on my Facebook feed as well. And that's between 10 in the morning and 8 o'clock at night. And if the donation is really large, if you wouldn't mind making some arrangements ahead of time, that certainly makes it a little easier. And then we can make sure that somebody is there to help unload it and that sort of thing. Are you looking for any volunteers to help out at any point? We welcome everybody to come out because even if there isn't a said job for people, seeing what London does as a huge community, it's it's just refreshing first and foremost. Um, but even just being there to hear their stories and, you know, showing compassion to them and, you know, just being their friend, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these people don't have, you know, a lot of support in their life so even just somebody taking the time to say you know I hope you have a Merry Christmas and offering a hug or you know some words of encouragement or even if they you know are struggling with addiction and you're somebody who's overcome addiction just to be that person to say hey I got clean you can too you know those types of things are always welcome Um, also too I wanted to mention we do have a group on Facebook um, so anybody who wants to follow the donations, learn more what we do, um, this is our big uh, annual event. However, I do go out several times throughout the year as well, um, just on a smaller scale and hand out various items of need too. So if you want to join the group, it's called London's Homeless Helpers on Facebook and you can follow us there to see what we're doing in the community. Great stuff. And then the event itself is Sunday, November 24th. So accepting donations at 700 Osgood Drive, Unit 134, from this Friday through to November 20th, and then on Sunday, November 24th, at the Salvation Army Center of Hope. You're welcome to come by. Volunteers will be there as early as 7 o'clock for setup, and then it goes from 8 until 4. We'll talk more about that as it gets closer. Misty, thank you for what you do in this community, and thanks for the time today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spread the word this way. It it means a lot, and it also helps accumulate more donations and more supporters. So it's great. Let's get that going. Thank you. Thank you. That is Misty Craig. And more information 
on something that we can all be involved in. It is a basically a, a fight to end homelessness, and a lot of times it just takes getting involved in this one time, and you think, I'm doing this forever. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 